from the point of view of a child, all that matters is the experience they're having. Right. And so the idea of daycare was that it was almost, I mean, I think of it um, as, you know, sort of the parking garage model of, of um, child rearing, right? It's like, it's like you need a safe place to keep your car while you go to work. So you put your car in this place and it's guarded and so forth. And then you pick it up at the end of the day, right? I think that had been our original idea for childcare. Like these babies are just sort of lying there, these young children, they, they, they're just learning to talk. They're just learning to walk. Anyone can talk to them, right? So we can just leave them there and then pick them up at the end of the day. Um, and what developmental science tells us is that's completely wrong. That's, 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 that this is actually the most important period of human development in the, in the, in the human lifespan. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by no one. Uh, we have uh, Nick is still very much uh, in paternity leave mode, although he's still working his butt off. Uh, really grateful to him. Uh, but he's back in West Virginia uh, raising his very real baby, Margot Solheim. Uh, but today we decided to have on a guest to talk about all the babies, um, specifically uh, what the nature of, of early childhood policy in America is today. Um, the leader of a fantastic new organization. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything else we have cooking as an organization, uh, backlog of this podcast, uh, events that we're hosting, the deployment of new programs. There should be a couple applications going live very soon for different programs that we're doing, Fellowship 2023, Foundations of American Statecraft, other things in general, book market be going as often as you can please subscribe to this podcast i'm shocked how many of you don't actually subscribe you just kind of go navigate to the episode it makes your life easier we only come into your inbox once a week don't worry about it um so subscribe on youtube subscribe on apple Podcasts, subscribe on spotify subscribe everywhere it really does help us and rate and review the podcast as well today we had on Catherine b stevens who is the founder and ceo of the center on child and family policy ccfp it's a brand new organization that literally founded just a few days ago wednesday of last week Uh, Prior to launching CCFP, she served for more than six years as a resident scholar of the American Enterprise Institute's leading uh, early childhood program. She her analysis and commentary have been published in Early Learning Nation, Education Week, The Hill, HuffPost, Institute for Family Studies, Los Angeles Times, National Review, New York Daily News, New York Post, USA Today, U.S. World News Report, and The Wall Street Journal. Her publications include Renewing Childhood's Promise, The History and Future of Federal Early Care and Education Policy, uh, Does Pre-K Work, The Research on 10 Early Childhood Programs, and What It Tells Us, and Still Left Behind, How America's Schools Keep Failing Our Children. Uh, before joining AEI, Dr. Stevens founded and led Teachers for Tomorrow, one of the first teacher apprenticeship programs in the United States, which recruited and trained teachers for New York City's lowest performing schools. She began her career as a public education uh, preschool teacher in New Haven, Connecticut and St. Louis, Missouri. She has a PhD in education policy from Columbia, a master's in education from Teachers College, a MBA from Columbia Business School, and a BA in U.S. history from the University of Chicago. She's very well credentialed, even though she thinks that most of those credentials were pretty silly, that she didn't actually need them. She is a practitioner. She is lovely. Uh, and she is a 
depth of knowledge on everything on this issue. We we went super deep on uh, this growing movement that the second a kid pops out of the womb, you have to go hand them over to a public school bureaucracy, why it's bad for kids, why they need their parents, why the two-income trap may have had something to do with all of this, uh, the corporate family and how the erosion of that may have been the cause of this, public health, obesity, everything. I highly, highly recommend if you at all care about the fact that we are destroying America's kids today to listen through to the end. It's a fantastic episode. It's a fantastic new organization. Catherine, someone all of you should be paying attention to. We'll go now to Catherine D. Stevens. Catherine, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We always like to hear about how our guests got to the point where they are today. You've launched a new think tank, a new organization, but tell us how you got to this point. It's a it's a very interesting path, and I think people would would find it uh, quite compelling. Um, so um, where I've ended up is unexpected. I grew up in Seattle, Washington, in the nineteen seventies, um, which was um, kind of the the headquarters in some ways of first I first hopes for the war on poverty so I grew up really um in a big government a liberal big government liberal kind of environment Mm -hmm. Uh, my parents were both university professors my mother's a music historian my father's a neuroscientist Mm -hmm. so I was not political at all. I just was brought up with an idea of how the world was and the fact that the federal government was now going to be solving poverty and fixing things. Um, I was brought up with the idea that that was a really great thing, Mm -hmm. which, of course, from my point of view, if it had worked, it would have been a great thing. Um, But I just, as I said, I was not political. So I went to University of Chicago. I majored in U.S. history. That was, I was looking at ideas from the 19th century, so I wasn't political. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked in higher education for a number of years. Then I ended up founding and running a not-for-profit, working with low-performing schools in New York City, um, recruiting and training new teachers using an apprenticeship model. I ran that for 10 years. Over my, my 10 years in the schools, I that was Which when 10 I, years without a bit. That was uh let me think. That was from 1990 um 1993 1993 to about 2002. Okay. Um and what I saw was that this idea that I had frankly believed in which was you have smart people planning things out and you're spending a lot of money and you have the buildings and you have the staff and you have the whole thing but something was not working mm-hmm. because these we the schools in New York City was 50% of tax dollars most wealthy people in New York City don't send their children to public schools but they're paying a lot of taxes and people were in New York were very supportive of public schools especially in low income neighborhoods the per child cost is high back then it was like $30,000 however this was the in 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 you know not in all cases there were there were wonderful schools there were wonderful most important classrooms teachers but overall this was failing kids mm-hmm. so that was the first time i started to th- think this formula that i that that i had been you know that i'd sort of grown up believing um, didn't always pan out on in real life the way w- w- one hoped. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up 
deciding that I wanted to um, kind of have an impact beyond just running my program. So I went back to graduate school. I got an MBA at Columbia Business School because I was interested in how people who actually run things, um, whose livelihoods depend on running things well, how they do that. Mm -hmm. And that was fascinating. Um, and then I decided to be to um, get a, a PhD so that I could be a policy person, yeah. um, which, by the way, worked like a charm. Um, and what was actually what the thinking my thinking was this was I spent most of my life not being interested in higher ed because getting higher degrees because the people who know things are the people who are actually doing them. So I found myself in a situation where I had spent years in the public schools, um, but it did. It, I I had no credentials for being an expert. Right? right. So I decided that knowing what was actually going on was not sufficient to be an expert. I had to have degrees. So I w I got my PhD to be an expert, and it did work. Then I got to be an expert. Yeah. Having I don't. Actually, Do you think you learned much new? I learned a lot in business school, but I didn't necessarily learn much getting my PhD. It was a wonder. It was a it was a worthwhile process. Yeah. Um, just sort of engaged. You know, it's, it's a worthwhile mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. um, but in any case, I decided to do my dissertation on this question, which had bothered me a lot when I was working in the schools, which was there were horrendous teachers. There were some amazing teachers, but some horrendous teachers. And it was just sort of understood that we could not get rid of the teachers, right? You couldn't mm -hmm. fire the teachers. These were teachers where the principal knew this was a horrible teacher and all the other school teachers knew that this was a horrible teacher. But it was just sort of known that you could not fire the teacher. Mm -hmm. And I was just curious about why. We're talking, this is a system of 70,000 teachers. So my dissertation topic was analyzing all the laws and the rules and the regulations governing teacher evaluation and accountability in New York City. Like mm -hmm. what does that what does it say on paper? So the next sort of turning point in my thinking was the resistance that I got to asking that question. And then second, when I had analyzed at great length the laws and the rules and the regulations, what I discovered was that there was nothing? There's nothing in the system that holds teachers accountable for their performance with children. Mm -hmm. They're held accountable for the degrees they have. They're held accountable for um, continuing professional development. But there's nothing on paper that holds them accountable for their their work with children. And that conclusion was something that my dissertation um, advisor had a lot of trouble with. And that was kind of shocking to me. So I, you know, I'd ask the question like, well, what, what about, what about the evidence I've, I've put forward is, is not supporting my conclusion. And that wasn't a conversation he was um, interested in, in, in having. So that was this, that was probably the, 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 my next moment of thinking that this, you know, group of well-meaning people um, are maybe are 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 not asking the questions that need to be asked, mm -hmm. and are not uh, engaging sufficiently with the reality of what's actually going on for the people that we are caring about. Mm -hmm. um, in the middle there, I um, moved to Nicaragua, which was a kind of an unexpected development. Um, I went to learn Spanish for my um, I had to do a language exam for my PhD. 
ended up loving it, was a graduate student, so I was not earning any money and was able to live well in Nicaragua for you know very little money, which enabled me to stick to my guns. Um, the original professor who was um, not enthusiastic about my conclusion ended up leaving my committee. Um, but um, it, it took a while. And had I been living in Manhattan, which is where I'd been living when I was doing my PhD, at, it was at Columbia, mm-hmm. um, I would not have been able to kind of see that through. Um, my experience in Nicaragua, uh, I think, was sort of like the third sort of turning point in my thinking. I speak Spanish now, which I love. Um, but the culture there um, is so vastly different than um, than the U.S. In, in 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 critical ways around the way families, the experience of being a child. Right. Um, so I then um, was finished my PhD and ended up in kind of one of those things. Um, getting a job at the American Enterprise Institute as a, uh, a scholar in early childhood. Um, I actually did teach in preschool when I was in high school and, and, and college mm-hmm. and had always loved it. Um, and when I got to, when I got to AEI, um, I th- thought as many people do, I thought of early childhood as early childhood education, um, meaning pre-K. And I was called the pre-K scholar and I didn't, it took me, I was there for about six months before I started to resist that. Mm-hmm. Um, and now um, my focus has shifted um, substantially. And when I think of early childhood now, I think primarily of prenatal, uh, prenatal to age five, and but most certainly prenatal to age three. Mm-hmm. So this way that where you've kind of narrowed thinking about mm-hmm. early childhood to the the first year a child shows up in school i think says a lot about how this society views children which um to me is a a kind of a a root of a problem that we need to be focused Mm -hmm. on more so it was a little bit a a little bit long winding um road of how i got so yes so then just to say how so so i just became so when I, when I got to AEI, I had expected that I was going to go back to K-12. Like mm-hmm. that was what I'd worked in. I was for my organization. All my, my, I had expected I was going to go back to Manhattan and work in the K-12 reform um, scene. Um, after a couple of years at, a, at working in early childhood, I cannot imagine going back to K-12 because I've just become so convinced that the... Um, the importance of this period of life is is so immense, and the it's the our our, our kind of policy, our sort of not just policy, but just sort of our neglect of it as a society um, is 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 much too is too big. You mm-hmm. know that gap is a is a big problem, um, and the field has until really very recently was it was just very a very narrow little field just thought of as pre-k it's that's changing um but it it just need the the field of early childhood being being a young child Mm -hmm. 
needs to be elevated to a, 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 a more visible level, mm-hmm. um, which is why I decided to um, found a think tank focused specifically on that. So it seems like today uh, the broad consensus in American society and especially in left wing policy circles is that as soon as humanly possible, it's an affirmative good to take the child out of the home and put them into some form of education or daycare or something like that. It sounds like you think that that's a mistake. Why? You know, my my um, what what the way I see this is starting it was not until the 1960s that we thought of the public schools as the the our solution our policy solution to um to to addressing poverty and 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 equalizing opportunity that was a war on poverty idea mm-hmm when 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 public schools started they were a discrete you know place that was of importance um children went there to learn specific you know reading writing and arithmetic mm-hmm. right and then they, you know the curriculum expanded but this idea that this these you know these large these 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 big buildings all over america are, are the place that we accomplish human development of young people that was never the ex, that was never an, an idea that had never been an idea of what schools are for what's happened since the 60s is is we have sh- we've 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 we're spending an immense amount of money almost i think it we're up to 750 billion in many states it's um, it, in all states, it's from a third to a half of state revenue is spent on the public ed- and public schools. Mm-hmm. It is the, the our it is the vehicle for developing children into adults, mm-hmm. right? And we have come to see we've so come to see school as the place where we accomplish that. You'll hear the people discussing this issue. They talk about. For example, they'll be talking about school choice and they will describe people's children as their students. They'll say, well, parents want their students to have choice. (laughs) They're not students. They're children. Yeah. Right. Children are children. They are not students. We have come to see in our society, we've come to see children as students. So what we what we had for I, I. So this is where I'm seeing this coming from. The way we had thought of early development for a long time is children are kind of these almost inanimate objects, or not not objects, but sort of inanimate beings. They just kind of lie there, then they sort of toddle around. And it's not until they can talk and walk and actually are at an age where they can go to school that we started, we were thinking of them as being, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, real human beings right mm-hmm. um what's happened is we've now come to understand that learning starts at birth that it is not the case um anyone who has their own baby and pays any attention can tell 
that starting at the moment of birth, there's a, there is a very engaged human there. And what the science is telling us is that the brain development at that period is, 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 is almost beyond comprehension. So as we have come to understand that babies are learning from birth, that has led us to think, well, that means they need to be in, from, from, in school from birth, right? We've come to confuse, we've come to, education really means human development, mm-hmm. but we've come to conflate education, human development with schooling. Mm-hmm. When we think human development, we think schooling. And so now that we understand that early development is essential, there's this inclination to think, well, that means that we need earlier schooling. That's that that's we that was first evident with pre-K. That that people people became convinced, yes, we can understand that four-year-olds are learning more than we thought, mm-hmm. right? So when we want to help su- support the development of four-year-olds, how do we do that? Well, we have one answer for supporting people's young people's development and that's school. Mm-hmm. So we'll put them in school. Um and the and and so the 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 that that idea that the way a person a way a young person is developed is they go to school seems to me to be at the root of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this idea that um, that you know on the right people talk about you know the government you know kind of getting their claws into people young and. I, 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 I'm, that is, I can imagine that that may be a part of it. I don't really see that actually in tr- right now in the early development period. I don't see that as the driver as much as this idea that the important place that learning and development occurs is in a non-parental group institutional environment. Is one of the tails wagging the dog on this phenomenon that there is a growing movement, implicit or explicit, based around the idea that parents may not be qualified to raise their own children. You have babysitters having bachelor degree requirements in certain states now. How much do you think that plays into it? The same credentialization that you experienced, you know, you weren't allowed to be an expert even though you were without a PhD. Has that percolated all the way down to the most common human relationship in the history of humanity which is the parent-child relationship yes yeah and you can see this and you can see this in older older ages with the homeschooling movement Mm -hmm. i i mean the idea that it that it is you know virtually child abuse if you are if you do not put say a 10 year old in a non-parental group institutional environment that that's where learning takes place that is just inconceivable that that anyone's mother or father or or whatever other person in their home could teach them i think homeschooling is growing as you know i think people are discovering that's not actually the case mm-hmm. when you look at how little children learn in school it's kind of a low bar on mm-hmm. in the first place so we already have that idea. We already have the idea that that real learning occurs in an in, in an institutional environment, um, and obviously in K twelve, there's this. I mean, it, it is true. You can't. You we, we having credentials does not make people good teachers. So there's a big 
flaw in that whole system. On mm -hmm. the other hand, it is also obviously the case that you just don't want any old person in there. Mm -hmm. We don't do a good job of deciding who's in there, but but realizing that that we need to have some system for having the right person there. I think right now we have the wrong system. That part makes sense. To me, the bigger problem is that that just like we feel like parents have don't really have a legitimate role in educating a 10 year old as we are now thinking of this early development period as mattering we will come to think that parents aren't really capable of educating a two-year-old adequately either mm -hmm. this has happened in sweden it's so interesting so i had a did an event um at aei about a year and a half ago with three women from sweden one who was is a professor who um, uh, an older woman who was very involved in a big um, universal preschool movement in, in Sweden, a successful universal preschool movement in Sweden about 20 years ago. And it was she, that universally funding it or universal attendance like both. It was mandatory. OK. Um, and I'm trying to remember if it's mandatory. I don't think it's mandatory, but everybody does it. Okay. Um, which is part of the issue. So, um, they established the funding. They established, which you know, this is part of what I what I worry about. They established the funding, and then the culture has followed, mm -hmm. right? So we've they've they established. So this so the one my the one guest on the, in this event um, was was this woman who was seeing unintended consequences of what something she worked very hard to put into place. I admired her a lot for for you know kind of confronting that, mm -hmm. um, which as you know can be unusual. The other two were were mothers who are active in very who are leaders in a uh, not just a Swedish movement but a European movement for um, parental and mother mother rights. Mm -hmm. And when they talk about that, what they mean is what they're talking about is their right to raise their own child, like little children. So Sweden has universal parental leave, and the way the system has kind of evolved is. You are, and, and fa well, fathers have it too. They're actually now looking at it. I'm not, they may have, they may have, um, they may have already implemented this. Forcing fathers, this is so interesting. I, this is something would be worth looking into. Um, forcing fathers to take all their parental leave because the fathers don't. Yeah. Um, they got a lot, months, but they tended not to take it. Um, so Sweden thinks that the father should just be at home more. So I can imagine all kinds of ways that could play out for good or for bad, but whatever. Anyway, so but the but in general, mothers do stay home with their with their baby for the first year. After that, it is really becoming it's become socially unacceptable to n not have your child in a full day preschool program. It's mm -hmm. it's 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 considered being a bad parent if your 2-year-old is is not in preschool. There's so there's a couple of number one the 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 there's there's evidence that this has not had a positive effect on children, mm -hmm. which I don't think is surprising, um which we can talk about. Young children are not hardwired to be in these kinds of environments that's that's just simply not the way uh we're evolved to develop 
uh, a 10 year old, what a 10 year old needs or even a six year old is very, very different from what a one year old needs or a two year old needs. Um, but then the other problem is that you, you're cutting parents out of the equation. Parents are not considered qualified to raise a uh, their their children after after their babies. They they so part of what these groups are doing, both in in Sweden specifically and in Europe more broadly, is like parent coaching to to to, to help parents build their confidence. It's like if you want to stay, I, I'm not making this is like actually literally how it is right this minute. There, if you want to stay home with your two year old, you actually can do that you are you can be what your two-year-old needs you don't need training to do this so that happened in sweden over the course of a decade or two that's that's shift in thinking and it started with the funding which as a benefit mm -hmm. right which then drove this culture shift, which is exactly what's happened in the United States. We started with this idea that we would have public schools for everyone and it would be a good idea and people could could do this, right? And that's now, you know, kind of evolved into that's the only place a child can be. Um, if you want to homeschool your child, that is, you know, this child abuse. Mm. The other thing we've seen in the States is the the manda mandatory age of of uh, school attendance at the in like 1910 or 1905 um i don't remember the breakdown but it was it was there were a number of states that had no mandatory entrance there were a bunch of them that had, the mandatory entrance was like age 8 or age 7 wow. and over the course of the 20th century it went from 8 and a lot of no mandatory seven, six, and now we're down to five. There are, and, 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 and there are states that, that I think may even at this point, I don't know if there are any states that are mandatory in pre-K. I don't think they've done that yet, but it's about to happen. Mm -hmm. So you can just see this trend towards from something that is starts as a, yes, parents would like to have this, um, to, something that's that 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 is being mandated for how children will develop even when there's an awful lot of evidence that it's not good for children mm -hmm. i have a kind of interesting question about the mechanics of how that works it strikes me as as potentially plausible tell me if i'm wrong that you know let's say before preschool is is broadly utilized in a given country or or economy um it's primarily probably used by very wealthy people. The the preschools are probably extremely well funded. Uh, there is a, a very high quality teacher pool being used to pull into it. And, and all of the attendant socioeconomic benefits that would come from all those factors mean that any science done on those preschools shows much better results than a program would likely have when implemented at scale across socioeconomic stratum when you have to recruit millions more employees right. for that system and uh, have probably less relative amounts of funding uh, directly going into the system than in a super private elite preschool system. Right. Do you think that's happened? Well, I, I think um, I, in, in Sweden, from what I understand, yes, um, the class sizes have gotten, you know, as they've, you know, they're, they're, it's a, this national program class sizes have gotten bigger. There's questions about 
um, inadequate teacher quality. Um, and that's certainly, we've seen that again with K-12 in this, in this country. I, I really see two problems though. One is um, what's described as, uh, what's described here, for example, as a high quality preschool environment is for babies, um, eight babies. So there's the, they, the way that this is, this is sort of assessed um, is on the number of children per staff person and the size of the group. Both mm-hmm. of those things do matter for a child's experience. So babies is the, 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 the standard high quality um, that would be discussed, say, on the Hill is four babies per staff people with a maximum of eight babies in a room. It is not possible for two adults to provide adequate nurture and care to eight babies. You can imagine if you, let's say your wife had quadruplets <laughs> and you were like, oh, honey, that's wonderful. We're so happy we have quadruplets. And you went to work every single day and your mother, your wife was at home all day with four babies. Yeah. That would be considered outrageous, mm-hmm. right? You, It's one thing to have four babies for a couple of hours that's 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 different right mm-hmm. so so if it's a part-time thing mm-hmm. if if there's if it's if it's and we can talk about this if it's child care that's three or four hours a day that is not going to be you can imagine having you know let's just say your wife had quadruplets you you guys had quadruplets and your wife is home with them you could imagine her being alone with quadruplets for you know three or four hours without feeling like this was just gonna this is a catastrophe mm-hmm. but all day every day eight nine ten hours a day it just doesn't make sense yeah. we humans don't we don't have litters of children yeah. for a reason we have one maybe two and historically or evolutionarily, obviously with a lot of other people to help. So th- what we think of as hot, now the American Academy of Pediatrics says three babies to one staff person and a, and a, and a maximum group size of six. But again, let's say you guys had triplets. Still, we can't, that's not what babies can't, are not, are, babies are not hardwired, human babies are not hardwired to be raised in groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so just that is, I think, a flaw in our thinking. Ten-year-olds function fine in groups. But if you look at monkeys, say, when monkeys are very small, they cling to their to the mother. Mm-hmm. When they become older, they they leave the mother like little by little and they start playing with other little monkeys. Yeah. Right. That's what they do. Yeah. It's a, it's just natural development um, with older children. So that's so the, the other problem with this, of course, is that we're also hardwired. We develop best in in small, familiar groups of people with multi ages. Mm-hmm. Siblings are very important. So it's like a bleak environment for a baby to be eight, nine, ten hours a day of your infancy in a room with two adults and seven other babies. That's just yeah. not a good way for a baby to to, to be living. Yeah. Two-year-olds, one-year-olds, two-year-olds. If you can also imagine, let's just say now your triplets are or one or they're two. 
it's it's it they, they don't need as intent that two by your time you're you're two you don't need the same kind of intensive attention but raising two-year-olds in a gr- large group of two-year-olds uh is just not optimal yeah that's fascinating i'm curious about the the other side of the ledger something that um i can't imagine doesn't have implications is those staff people spending a year with infants every single day for probably more waking hours than their mother does and then those infants no longer being with them is there any sense of what it does to the psychology of an older person to take care of successive generations of infants at that scale for 20 years of a career 30 years of a career you know, I think what's interesting about it is these settings actually don't don't allow for the kind of loving bond that would lead to to to, to that problem, which is an even bigger problem in the right. first place, right? So, if you have a loving grandmother who's living with you or let's say you're you're Elizabeth Warren and your aunt B shows up, to take care of your children in the home, which is a wonderful idea. Right. I mean, if what we were proposing was a national program, a very expensive national program for an Aunt B <laughs> in every home, yeah. I, I, I'd be more interested, yeah. right? Um, but you can't replace an Aunt B with a, a, a non-parental group institutional program mm-hmm. where people are just going, mm-hmm. these tiny children are going out. But let's just say Aunt B came and she spent a year with these children and then she had to leave it would be devastating. Never see them again. And never see them again. It would be devastating for the children. It would be devastating for Aunt B. But the con- but the circumstances of say a a, a childcare center um, don't lead to that problem. Mm-hmm. The problem they lead to is the experience of you can imagine again. Let's just say your wife is home with four babies. That's going to be a very exhausting. Uh, just just an absolutely frustrating, exhausting, isolating thing. You can't take care of them all. Yeah. Right? This one needs to be fed. That one needs to be fed. You have to change this one's diapers. And in keep in mind that what babies need to develop, what babies live for is in is 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 con- eye contact, mm-hmm. right? Like interaction. Mm-hmm. Um you how can you be having and that's what builds the bond on both sides. Yeah. So if you, how can you, I've known people, you may, I don't know if you have do if you know, if you have children. I don't, but my do, co-founder just had his first. <laughs> so he, he will tell you about this. Yeah. So the bonding happens on both sides. If you, I had a colleague at work who had a baby and he was a kind of a shy person anyway. And I had been doing all this research on infant development. And I said, you know, are you, are you, are you, are you like having eye contact with a baby? And he, the baby was like a week or two old. And he said, well, no, the baby won't do that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yes, the baby will too do that. <laughs> you just have to try. Yeah. So I, and this is like such a serious, wonderful guy. Um, and so I said, this is what you do. I said, you just go up and you just, you, you just like look at the baby and just do that over and over again. And you'll see within days, this baby, like, this was, this was, 
just joy for the baby. And yeah. he, he saw this. He would come and they would look and the baby would just be wiggling all over. That yeah. is what that is what nourishes babies. That yeah. is how they that is how learning occurs for babies. Yeah. Um and um, you know, I would we he would we would discuss it periodically. He's like, it works. And the bond that he was developing enormously strengthened. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that he said that the pediatrician had never mentioned any of this, which is a whole other question in terms of how our healthcare system could be supporting early development better. Um, but in any case, if you are taking care, if you're in a room with one other adult who you maybe you like the person, maybe you don't like the other person and eight babies, you can't be developing this sort of relationship. Mm -hmm. Let's just say you're in a room with six babies and another person. It's very difficult to develop that kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, as you're pointing out, um, and I actually hadn't thought of that much because I've just been so focused on the problems with the environment in the first place. Yeah. I mean, if, like how 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 would it's hard enough for, you know, fourth grade teachers like if you you this isn't your baby. So how how there is a uh, a high cost uh, to bonding, which if you are doing this year after year, you would avoid you would right. avoid bonding. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Um, the other I imagine tail wagging the dog in this system is that the biggest sociological change in the way our society works over the past hundred years has been uh, the arrival of both parents into a workplace that is not the home. And so how much do you think that that has been um, the the secret sort of implicit impetus for earlier and earlier child formal education outside the home? Right. Well, so you know, I think the real shift, um, and this is something I I saw in a, from my time in Nicaragua in a way that I had n really never occurred to me before. The real shift was from a, um, I think what sociologists call the, the corporate family, mm -hmm. where the 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 um, the workplace and the home were the same thing right a subsistence farm a blacksmith a, you know whatever a store store yes so where i lived in nicaragua is a little town called granada this was before political problems there that have caused a lot of, it, was, it was sort of a golden era and in, in nicaragua it was a wonderful place to live at that time but it was still very poor and so granada was so poor uh all of nicaragua was so poor they don't they don't they were there were no walmarts for example there were no big chain stores. Mm -hmm. I have to say that when I came back to the States, I would remember how convenient it was to have Amazon and to go to these big stores where I could get whatever I wanted. Um, so there, you know, there, that was, that I was amazed at, at how much I, I, I would miss that. However, what there was instead was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little businesses. So right on my block, there was the party store business it's where you went to buy balloons or whatever. There was the sort of electric, you know, sort of the, the electronic parts little store. There was a little, there are many, many, many little grocery stores, many, many, many little pharmacies, all owned by a human, an actual person, a human running it with their family. Mm -hmm. And that, of course... Um, is how human society oper has operated 
it still operates a lot of places, has operated um, for a long, long time, and how America used to operate. The word employee wasn't even in the dictionary until the, like around the, the late late ni- late 1900s. It didn't mm-hmm. exist, right? You didn't have the idea of being an employee. Um, and so what Nicaragua, what I saw in Nicaragua, in, in Granada, was the, the, the whole family could be there. The baby, if there's a baby, the baby can be like crawling around on the floor or being held by someone who's working. Or the grandmother is, you know, in the back room. So the so the, the children are back there with her. So you 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 I, I saw how it works when the place that people are working is the same as where is is where is where their family is. Right. Um, whether that's a, as I said, this was a kind of a, an urban area. So in this case, it was little stores. Um, or um, you know services, um, but uh, you know farms, and that was how in the United States that was how people most people lived until the, the like eighteen sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first thing, right? And then there was this whole movement, of course, that to 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 it was this sort of idea that that you know it's like sort of hanging onto a shred of of what of of hanging on to the shred of sort of the business of living all being in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there has to be someone there, you know, kind of continuing that, um, which of course was the, you know, for good reasons, the mother. Um, there, you know, it, it, I think that there are a lot of problems with that. That wasn't the original idea, right? There wasn't the, the original idea wasn't that there would just be one person at home all by themselves with the, with the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is has you know that that led to um, women feeling like why are we like locked up here by ourselves? You know, it's not good for their mental health, which is not good for their children. Um, so the kind of the isolation of that wasn't good, but it but it was at least young children um, were able to be in in a in a in a in a kind of a st- stable familiar environment for their earliest years, and now for ec- well both because women are focused on their careers and because of economic reasons. There's like we've left we've left raising young children out of the out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Like we we have nothing we have nothing in our society now. We have that focused on raising young children, mm-hmm. um, and so we're kind of groping around to figure out. Oh, well, someone has to raise these young children, and who what what in our society deals with children? Oh, schools. So we'll just sort of expand that to accommodate. This these 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 children that aren't being raised mm-hmm. by anyone. Mm-hmm. Is there a distinction between sort of these formal pre-K programs and something like daycare? Um, what's what, do, is there any evidence that one might be better than the other or anything like that? It, you know, um, that's kind of a false distinction, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, from the point of view of a child, all that matters is the experience they're they're having, right? And so the idea of daycare was that it was almost, I mean, I think of it um, as, you know, sort of the parking garage model of, 
of um, child rearing, right? It's like it's like you need a safe place to keep your car while you go to work. So you put your car in this place and it's guarded and so forth. And then you pick it up at the end of the day, right? I think that had been our original idea for childcare. Like these babies are just sort of lying there, these young children, they, they, they're just learning to talk. They're just learning to walk. Anyone can talk to them, right? So we can just leave them there and then pick them up at the end of the day. Um, and what developmental science tells us is that's completely wrong. That's, 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 that this is actually the most important period of human development in the, in the, in the human lifespan. Um, so, like I said, now we're saying, oh, well, it is important. So we can't just we can't just have, quote, daycare, which is sort of like a parking garage. Now we have to recognize that it needs to actually be preschool. Um, but that's not right either, because that is not the appropriate early development environment for young children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the question really isn't. Are you, you know, is it, are, are the, are the, do the people just have high school degrees and um, they just play with the kids or are they learning the alphabet? I mean, you know, it's like the, they're, they're, the, 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 the question isn't the curriculum. The question is, where are they? Are the question they is, where are they? And who are they with? Yes. And if you put yourself in the position of the child, hmm. right? One, one, if you do a search for, on the internet for, um, for, you know, for, um, tips for helping your child to the transition to childcare. There's just many, many articles on how to cope with the fact that your child is, is just completely freaking out, um, at being left at childcare. It's like, well, it's very difficult. They'll adjust. So the fact that your child is, is is like basically screaming in pain as you are leaving, Mm -hmm. um, all the articles are basically here's how you put the earplugs in. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. that's right. And 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 the reason, the reason that ch- children, children, I I uh, uh, like I, I said an an eight year old a nine year old can be excited to go to school. They can be excited to see their friends. Right. There's things for them to do. They have their own life. Right. But that's just not how uh that's just not true about uh an infant or a one-year-old or a two-year-old or a three-year-old they don't want they want to stay home Mm -hmm. um and like as i was saying before there's a really big difference between a part-time program right so if you just drop your if you drop the child off and the child knows you're gonna be back in three hours it's not from first thing in the morning till the end of the day and what the research has shown is that there is a, a real difference in in the in the impact of that, which would make sense, right? I mean, it's mm. if if it's a few hours a day, that's just part of a child's day that they can kind of you know sort of um, tolerate. Mm-hmm. If it's the majority of their waking hours for the majority of their mm-hmm. early years, that's just a really radical way to be thinking about about raising young children i get the sense that this is one of those questions where people because of the discomfort associated with the implication dance around all the potential consequences without actually focusing on you know what what's the fundamental number at the heart of it what's the age that you think is actually appropriate for the first time for children to be in that 
nine to five or nine to four or whatever environment completely away from the family. So we started at, you know, right. eight or no mandatory right, at right, all right, a right, century right. Exactly. ago. Right. Where, where's that line supposed to be? Well, I think children are very. So every parent that I've spoken to mm-hmm. has feel, you know, there's there's one, the assistant director of, of, of my organization, for example, she has two sons who are now in their, um, in their, in their, in their late teens. Um, one of them was, you know, just such a much more resilient, much more eager to kind of go out. And the other one was, was a much more reserved shy child. Mm -hmm. So there's differences between children, um, that are enormously important that parents are very aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I think, I taught in I taught in preschool for a number of years with four year olds, and I I I I think it's very tiring for a four year old to be in a program from say eight in the morning till six at night. Um, that that and if it's if it's a if it's if but if it's a if it's a a, a really good place that 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 a four year old likes to be in that they they feel safe they 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 it's not you know it's not so many it's not an overwhelming number of children which is another issue the teachers are nice to them which is not at all always the case um the 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 conflicts between children are 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 managed so that it's you know sort of not like like a constant war um, which is another issue but if it's a good place um Four-year-olds can can I think really engage. What I observed was four-year-olds really liked it. Three-year-olds are still they're they they're three-year-olds. I think that are kind of more excited, are more um, more outgoing. Um, but my observation, I ta- taught sometimes in the three-year-old classrooms. And from what I understand about the about 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 early sort of trajectories of early development. A three-year-old is is still. Uh, I I don't think putting three-year-olds in large group settings for large proportions of the time uh, makes uh, makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you know, and the thing about what's so interesting is interesting is we we could just also just ask them. One of the things I heard heard uh, was going on during COVID is people would say their their children were saying, "Oh, I'm so glad I get to stay home." <laughs> yeah, you know. And so I, 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 um, you know, and why not, you know, why part of my, part of what I am, um, part of my thinking is we've, we're not thinking about the well-being of young children. Mm-hmm. We, we just, we are, we need to be focusing on the well-being of young children, what we if, if, if what we know about their development from science, there's a very large body of science that tells us that what are what people's own instincts tell them um, people who people don't like leaving their children at child care, people, they, young children. They I don't you don't hear people complaining terribly about about their about you don't there's not a lot of articles on how to deal with taking your child to kindergarten like the mm-hmm. child is like screaming and you have to walk away right it, the child is ready to go um so i think that that is um there's just what the way we can think about a 5-year-old or a 6-year-old maybe a 4-year-old 
just is not does it not apply to to the first um, three or four years of a of a child's life? And anyone who has children can knows that it's just a vastly different developmental kind of phase. What were some of the most egregious examples of what we did to kids in this developmental phase because of COVID? You know, I felt like for the youngest children. Um, who got to stay home because their parents were home. I, I think it actually, COVID was kind of a boon. Also for pets, yeah. dogs, cats, and young children were all blissfully happy <laughs> during COVID yeah. because that's what they no want. No one was trying to leave them at the daycare. <laughs> no one was right. With, with your, 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 your dog was thrilled because you were home all the time, just like the dog wants. Mm. The cats, young children. Um, for children who were having to go, who once things were opening up and for, for children who were going back to pre-K or childcare because their parents were going to work, um, the, uh, the, the, the idea that they, of, um, the masks were enormously detrimental mm-hmm. and the, the way that young children learn is through interaction, through facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, there, there were actually big advocates for that who mm. have subsequently, um, acknowledged that, that, that it's just, that's just developmentally very damaging mm-hmm. for young children, not to mention, I, you know, terrifying, you know, I mean, it's just like, what kind of, a, it's just a terrifying experience to have to have this thing on your face and have right. it, right? But a lot of young children got to stay home when otherwise they would not have. And I know people who would have been working full time who actually spent the first year or two years of their child's life at home with them instead of being away from them. Um, And I think that's that will that will be something that is that that will lay a foundation that will be valuable for the rest of that um child's life it's also interesting because serve there's there's not nearly enough survey research done on this kind of thing but surveys have suggested that um parents there are a lot of parents who are who are working because they have to economically um and who would much prefer to be home with their kids um, and our friend Oren Cass has done a ton of survey research on this. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, I, well, when I say there's not enough, what I mean is this is an awfully big topic for one person in the whole sure. country to have yeah. done research on. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, this is one thing I love about Oren. It's just, it's enormously important research. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why well, I'm hoping that I'll be able to work with him to do much more of it because mm-hmm. it's just so important. Like, why would we not know these things? Mm-hmm. Why would we not know? Why would we not know? how parents feel about all this. Well, I guess that brings up an interesting question. What are the interests at hand that are pushing for this trend to ever younger education, ever younger, you know, full-time out of the home preschool? Well, trend one is, as you were pointing out earlier, I mean, given the fact that we're no longer, you know, running little stores as a family or running little farms as a family, and we're far from that, unfortunately, I think from the point of view of young children anyway, um, the the economic pressures, Mm -hmm. the people have to work. Most of the people who are writing about this, of course, are not those people. The mm-hmm. people who are writing about this are very, you know, they're career-oriented people. Mm-hmm. 
So the take in the media has around the COVID thing, for example, was that it was, you know, just this sort of practically a violation of human rights that you would have to stay home with your with your child. Mm -hmm. But that's not the way there's a lot of people in America who don't have careers. They have jobs. Right. So their idea of utopia is not dropping their child off at 8 a.m. at a high quality free childcare center to go to their job as an assistant manager at Walmart. Yeah. Like that's, they would much rather be home raising their own child. Mm -hmm. But if you're a New York times journalist, if you're a New York times journalist, you can't be a New York times journalist if you are also going to be spending full time raising your own child. And that's a legitimate choice. Mm. But, but, but one thing is good for a baby and the other thing is good for a grown up. Having a great career is great for the person who has it. But that doesn't mean that the implications for a young child are what's best for that young child. And leaving that group of people out of it, at the very least, there's a whole lot of people who would rather be raising their own children. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of heartbreaking that they aren't able to raise their own kids and their kids are not able to be at home. What are the contours of the national legislative push underway right now? I know that um, greater funding for child care has been a massive, in some cases, bipartisan push over yes. the last few years. Tell me a little bit about what some of the specific proposals have been and what those yes. political coalitions have looked like. Yeah. So the other thing, actually, I want to say on the on the, on the the forces, so the one force is that, right? Mm-hmm. The other force is... Um, this, uh, the other force is, um, I, I, I don't know exactly how to put this, but, um, it's a very, it just a very kind of in, uh, people, a very individualist sort of way of thinking that, well, I guess this is what I would say. It is the case that for a long time. A, a, um, a, let's say a married couple, a man and a woman have a child. The man just goes on with his life, right? He has a child. He gets to have a child, but he doesn't miss a step in his his life. So let's just say he was working really hard. He has a career. He's something he loves doing. Like we're talking about the career people now, right? Not right. Mm-hmm. And so he gets to have a child and have his normal self fulfilled life. And I think what what women have said, no, felt is that's not fair, right? That that why is that? You mm-hmm. know, a, we have, a man and a woman have a child. The man just goes on with his life. The woman's life is 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 transformed, mm-hmm. right? And so I am very sympathetic to that. The response has been, well, we need to set things up so that the woman has the exact same experience as the man, which is you have a child and you like, you kind of don't miss a beat, mm-hmm. which is very true. I know many, many guys who, who that's, that's what happened. They were like, they took a week off mm-hmm. and then they're right back. And you know, they're just going right. They, literally they just didn't, they didn't miss a beat. And so the idea is that women should be able to do that too, mm-hmm. right? You have a baby, but that doesn't transform anything. You just continue right along as you were. And I have no problem with women doing that. The problem is, is we've just left children out of the equation. Right. 
Now there's no one to be raising the children. So I think that those two, this is where I'm sorry, I'm going to, this is sort of the, I was thinking about your last question. Those two forces together, right? The economics of people having to work in, in this one group. And then this, 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 um, you, you, you know, kind of wave this sort of ideology or, or, or expectation on this other side of total equality between a man and a woman has led to just leaving, leaving children out of the, of the equation. Um, and what I would, what I have noticed is that in, I've noticed, I've known a, n- a number of young couples in Washington, D.C. that were two, you know, sort of power couples where the, the guy was the one who stayed home with a baby for a couple of years. Mm. I don't think that when we're these days, I don't think that when we're talking about someone staying home with a child, that we're necess- that, that necessarily means that we're, we're, we're trying to put women, you know, behind white picket fences barefoot. Like, I don't think that's what it means anymore. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, of younger guys are perfectly happy or even or want to, 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 to play that role. Um, so in terms of the legislation, the, the legislation, the focus of the legislation is the response to these two trends, which is we have left raising children out of our social equation here Mm. because we have this group that has to work. And then of course there's the other, the the third gigantic group that's a problem for children, which is there's only one parent. So you basically have this one group in which all parents have to work, however many there are. And then this other group, uh, which is, which is built is kind of built a culture of of uh, where women are as um, focused on their careers as as men, and which is fine. Um, it's but the children are left out, and so now we need to invent this whole giant system mm-hmm. um, to raise them, mm-hmm. and that is um, <laughs> that. That's to me. That's sort of dystopian. Mm-hmm. We we we're not going to be able to. We're not going to be able. We're not going to be able to bring children up to have it to be healthy, happy people, um, without devoting the, the 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 time and the attention and the love that they need to develop well. And right now, our society has just does has has not prioritized that how does that interact with another theme that people in our circles have talked about which is the unusual um at least historically speaking the unusual singular um vessel for all our hopes and dreams that we've churned children into so the the over investment usually because people right. are having much fewer children than they would have historically and and turning uh children into this like veblen good um that that is um you know potentially way over invested in in terms of uh and and creates a barrier to entry uh at least culturally and then downstream financially for people to have kids at all you know, I haven't actually thought about that. It's such a paradox, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's like this. It, 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 it's like this. It, it, that's just a paradox, mm-hmm. you know. Because on the on the one end, we're 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 kind of systematically 
refusing to build in investing in young children what they need, which mm-hmm. is time and attention. That's mm-hmm. what young children need, time and attention mm-hmm. of 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 their of their family, mm-hmm. of their parents. And you know, that's inconvenient, but it's but it is human nature. It mm-hmm. is it is how it is it's beyond human nature. It's you know, all mammals, most species, that's how mm-hmm. you develop, right? Um, so you're right on the, but then on the other end of it, uh, so we're trying to systematically depriving chill, young children of, of, of that, which is what they need more than that's, that's essential, kind of an essential foundation. But then on the other end, there's this immense amount of attention, but you know, is it time and attention or is it money? I mean, I mean, you know what I mean? Like our, 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 right. And so if you have to pay for tons of daycare, then it becomes a, a money investment, and 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 the education costs seem to be the primary thing people talk about. Oh, putting the kid through college. Oh, putting yes. know, the childcare and yes. everything. Yes, I mean a crib, blankets, and clothes don't cost that much in the grand scheme of things. No, they don't. And I yeah. think, but in terms of the the later, you know, the the sort of the the, the this this this. Oh, as you were saying, over investment in this or, or massive investment in children. Um, I, I haven't thought about this, but mm-hmm. it seems like I'm wondering if if that actually ends up being you're paying for for the for lessons and you're paying for camps and mm-hmm. you're paying for you know these 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 kinds of things. But are but I'm wondering I'm wondering if it's are, I don't I'm not one I'm thinking maybe that all that kind of famous you know paying for very good colleges. Mm-hmm. But you're not putting your own time into it. You're 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 paying money. Right. It's very expensive. But you actually carving out a piece of yourself, your your time, your attention, your love. Um, I'm thinking that's maybe not been increasing drastically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is not necessary. I don't think that's been decreasing at the rate that. The spending on on children is is increasing. As a related phenomenon, you had mentioned earlier uh, how it is an affirmative good for children to be in an environment where there is a diversity of ages present. The historical way that that was done was they had siblings that were of different ages than them. Um, it seems to me that that in this moment of time we find ourselves in the public policy debate could easily go your way on the question of you know okay we we should we should put a pause on the idea of ever earlier schooling um and and kids should be home with their parents what seems i think a greater lift is the idea of people should be having much more kids and and there just there's so many cultural barriers against that and, and potentially financial ones or uh as well what are the affirmative benefits that you've seen to living in an environment with at least two, but but three, four, five um, children in a home, as opposed to just just one. Well, I think part of the issue is it doesn't have to necessarily be in the home. So mm-hmm. one of the things I saw in Nicaragua was there would be, you know, f- fam extended families that lived, you know, within a block or two of each mm-hmm. other. So there's cousins, right? Right. So you you didn't necessarily have six children in one household in Granada, but there would be a group, a network, like a group of, you know, six or eight kids. Mm-hmm. Who were cousins and you know sometimes neighbors, but a lot of times cousins and siblings, and they're all they're also it were just not the helicoptering and and um, 
I don't know, liability thing that we have here. And so children would be out playing on the street and you would see like little six-year-old kids lugging a baby along with them. And you've just never seen such a happy baby. Now, just sometimes do they get dropped? I think they probably sometimes get dropped. (laughs) There are plenty of people who would say that's not a risk worth taking. I think that it is. I think the cost benefit analysis for the baby is this was a very good thing for babies. Um, And just the the, the kind of, you know, children, young children, children in in Nicaragua, it's just, their faces are different. They smile differently. It's, it was, it's just Mm -hmm. absolutely striking. The kind of joy being, once you get older, once, once maybe starting at around age 12, you'd be better off in the United States. Mm Prior to that, I think a child is better off in barring abject poverty, where you you know you 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 have inadequate nutrition. But if just being poor, you don't have shoes, but you have a joyful life. There was a kind of a joy there that children had that we that we don't that we, I don't see here. Yeah. Um, but in any case, so I think I you know having six kids all in one house. Um, can be great, but but that that can also be that's all you know. I don't think that's necessarily um, that that's a you know that's a that's a that's a uh, complicated enterprise to manage, right? Mm-hmm. Without without other people around, without grandparents. Sure. Um, but in a, but if children are able to, if, if children are are are. Pl- Playing, even just having one sibling or two siblings, mm-hmm. having children around in your neighborhood, or 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 being part of a community where children are are with each other, for young children, you know, this really struck me when I was um, in the airport. So we we don't see kids outside much anymore, right? You don't just see kids running around playing like they. When I grew up, actually, we just went outside and played, um, and with all kinds of kids, um, which. I think was much better for kids. I don't know how kids live without doing that now. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so you, but, but parents are so guarded of, with, of their children in airports. Um, you can actually see children sort of like interacting in the wild mm-hmm. because it's all carpeted. There's a lot of big spaces. Parents are kind of exhausted. Right. Yeah. And, what, so in early childhood, the the sort of the one of the key phrases is high quality adult child interactions. So the way you you measure uh, one ways you measure the quality of an environment is you and this is not necessarily a bad thing, but you 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 there are sort of techniques for literally counting the number of quote high quality <laughs> adult child interactions. Um, which do happen, and and if they're not happening at all, that's a bad thing. Yeah. Anyway, but that's sort of considered to be the gold standard, right? Yeah. So I w- would be in these airports watching, and I'm seeing like these young children. You'll see two year olds, three year olds. They are not seeking high quality adult child interactions. They are running after around after the bigger kids. Yeah after their older sibling, right? Yeah. Or whoever else they're traveling with, or just kids they meet in the airport. Yeah. But they are they are not seeking out, a two-year-old does not seek out other two-year-olds. A, seek, a two-year-old does not seek out a high-quality adult-child interaction. Yeah. A two-year-old seeks out a three-year-old or a four-year-old. Right. And 
it was it, it and and that's something you just don't see anymore mm-hmm. um so there, and that anyone who has multiple children will also tell you that the, those the relationships those relationships are hugely important in both directions but younger siblings learn an enormous amount from older from their older their older sibling um, and and you that that's I mean, we've always developed that way. And older siblings learn responsibility. Exactly, that's yeah. exactly right. That makes the potential of having and rearing children seem much less alien. That is absolutely true. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And I actually hadn't even thought about that, but you're right. So you're I mean, you know in these in the streets of Granada, little kids are all playing. They're in mixed age groups, mm-hmm. and there's babies around, mm-hmm. and they're or, or or just you know toddlers. And they're taking care of them, mm-hmm. so they're. That's just you know they, they they that's that's you could be four and you'll be taking care of a of a young child and that's not considered unusual or and you're not considered incapable of doing it either. If if you think about it, you know there is a, a plurality of Americans that live in a in something like this where you know they they're born maybe there is a sec a sibling born very close in age to them so they don't have any core memories of them being an infant they go into the public school system where they're exclusively around people their own age all the way until uh 12th grade chances are their parents are friends with people to a similar age to them therefore they never see the infants there i mean people might yeah. be adults before they ever spend That's a really good point any serious time around a child which is partially why it becomes such a high barrier to entry people think like this is an alien i've never seen what what do you do with that like they don't that is a really no good experience. point no i hadn't thought about that but i think you're absolutely correct mm-hmm. yeah and and of course for you know that 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 idea is just absurd in a lot of societies mm-hmm. Like in Granada, I mean, the idea that a child would grow up without having had any exposure to an infant is just, you know, that they, they take care of the infants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in our society as well, so when I was growing up, I started babysitting when I was 10. Mm-hmm. I was left alone at age 10. I was a very responsible 10 year old. Yeah, that might be one of the few vectors left where people do it. And now New York wants to require a bachelor's degree to babysit. Well, well, not even that. It's like no, no one leaves a baby with a 10 year old now. Yeah. No one leaves a baby. You yourself won't. And I understand that. I yeah. mean, if you have a baby one day, it's unlikely yeah. because we just we've just we just we've we we are I don't our thinking has just changed about children. We see children as so much less capable than we mm. used to. I started my own little summer camp preschool program, which I ran with a friend when I was 11 mm-hmm. and people this is Seattle, Washington. It was um, it was three, mostly three year olds, a couple two year olds, and these mothers just dropped their children off with an eleven year old, and I had a group of them for like a few hours, yeah. a couple you, times a week. You get arrested for that. <laughs> I would be literally. They, they would be arrested. I would yeah. be. They would be arrested yeah. literally. I don't think people even. I mean, I think people are hesitant these days even to hire, say, a fourteen year old or a fifteen year old to babysit. Yeah. So that's your point. That's a very good point that we like. Where where would where would young people be exposed to? taking care of of babies you're right there's like they it's very interesting one of the things that has been the most disturbing trend in american life is that if you go to a typical elementary school today you see a lot of um obese children you see 
there's clearly a crisis of public health happening across American society when it comes to just the the health of people. Um, what are its its antecedents, its roots in the the age range that that you tend to focus on? What are the ways that American life is fundamentally unhealthy for very young children today? Um, it's certainly the case that that obesity rates among very young children are have just skyrocketed. Um, I think this also points back to what I mentioned earlier that we are neglecting the um, healthcare system in thinking about early childhood policy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is that we that's that is universal childcare is um, not going to address this obesity question. I don't know what's causing it. I mean, there's the obvious, which is that in general, people are eating uh, very, you know, very high calorie, non-nutritious food. Um, People aren't getting exercise. Young children are getting a lot less exercise because they're not allowed to run around outside like they, they, they did, they used to. Um, I also wonder, um, so I also wonder to what extent um, the way that the way that the way that family lives are structured is is often very stressful mm-hmm. for everyone in the family. So if you are trying to raise children and you're working one job or two jobs, there's you know those kinds of factors. People are very stressed. So if you are stressed and you are your child is stressed. One way to um, distract your child or get your child to calm down is to give them something, um, give them candy, right? Give them something to eat. Or an iPad. Well, an iPad, which is a whole other issue, mm. right? Exactly. Exactly. Again, it, it's like filling a gap, a gap, a nurture gap. There, the, the, so if we think of nurture as basically time and attention, mm. loving time and attention, we are we have an, we have a we have a a a a a kind of a deadly nurture gap going mm-hmm. on and one thing that could be filling helping to fill that is food um i you know that's that's it's very difficult to resist you know if your kid is 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 throwing a fit and wants your attention and you're just too stressed and exhausted and you just can't deal with it to just give them something um, to give them, give them ice cream or give them chips or give them whatever, whatever it is. I don't know how much that is. I don't know. I do not know to what extent there's obviously there's lack of exercise. There's a generally poor diet across the board. And then there is to what extent is food being used to, um, to fill um, this nurture gap. Um, but it, it parents care a lot about their children and i i think we're 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 not doing enough to to give them the information they need about what they need to do and the and pediatricians are i think really the the kind of a a crucial leverage point for um for that um, but the the long term effects of 
this phenomenon for um, uh, health costs in this country are just you know enormous. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 this is this is going to be causing enormous health problems um, down the road for you know for for decades. What are the big legislative proposals that are on offer here in D.C. right now on the themes that that we've been discussing in this podcast? Are there any that you think are, are potentially good? Um, what are the, I assume most of them are, are quite bad along these lines because there's been a big push towards early and earlier right. child care um, systems. Uh, what, what does the landscape look like right now? Well, as you said, the, the major push is for, quote, public education starting at birth mm-hmm. and federally funded public education starting at birth. Mm-hmm. So with the K-12 system, uh, the federal government pays about 10% of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the 90% is paid by state and local. The sort of the policy idea in the early childhood space is that or, or that the early childhood's public early childhood system education system would be funded by the federal government. Mm-hmm. So that it was a you know cornerstone of Build Back Better, um, and that idea is not going away. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the other big um, question um, on the table has to do with the child tax credit, and um, you know I I think first of all I'm very uh, much more enthusiastic about federal spending that's targeted to lower income working people i mean that 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 one of the one of the problems that that i've had with um a bunch of these proposals is they are they're you know they're they're they include people who are making ton who are quite quite affluent Mm -hmm. who of course would rather have more money but don't need it um, and I just, I just don't, I don't know enough about how people have used the child tax credit mm-hmm. to, 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 to really have a sense of what I think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been, there, there are a couple of, there was a famous study that, so there's a lot of focus on child poverty mm-hmm. and obviously being, um, the problem with child poverty for young children is not the poverty per se, but the 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 primarily the problem is the stress on the parents and the the, the I stressed the especially maternal stress is is a very detrimental impact on early childhood development starting prenatal. So. It is it is detrimental to young children's development if they're living in a household with adults who are who are who who are who are very stressed about 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 who are about being in poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't I have not seen data on what people do with extra money that they get. So mm-hmm. if it's a matter of if it's something that's reducing the stress. That's going to help children. If it's something that's not reducing their stress, that's not going to help children. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 
in terms of people, so the other that's one. So one thing people can you can so the child tax credit has quote reduced child poverty, but I I just don't know enough about what's actually happening to to have a sense of how much is that helping kids. I mean, basically, it costs X. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is it is it helping children if it costs if is it is it or is it helping children one tenth of the amount that it's costing or is it are we getting enough bang for our buck or would that money be better spent on something else? I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, it does seem that people with young children having more money is 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 um, overall a, 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 a good thing. Um there's complicated issues, obviously, with 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 people. I wrote a, a, a policy proposal with a colleague at, at AEI, Matt Whitinger, showing how the child tax credit could um, could be used. People could be uh, showing a, a and we, we proposed an idea for allowing people to take an advance on the child tax credit to turn it into really meaningful like amounts of money in the first one or two or three years of a child's life. Mm-hmm. So instead of sort of dribbling it out, you know, what back back then when we wrote this, it was what was it, three thousand a year or two thousand, I forget what it was smaller, right? But but that amount dribbled, even three thousand, dribbled over over years is is you know, it's it is of some use. But if you were if you allowed people to take an advance on that money so they were able to actually use it to stay home themselves for a year or two, re- uh, reduce their work schedule from full time to part time, or if they're poor, to actually pay for much higher quality childcare. Mm-hmm. Wealthy people put their, I've never seen all the wealthy people I know put their children in, have nannies which is one to one or one to two or um, are or put them there, they're put the maximum ratio, the maximum number of children with babies that I've seen wealthy people choose is three babies to one person. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if people are, if you are giving, if you're allowing lower income people to take an advance on their child tax credit, they will have access to the kind of higher quality care that, that wealthier people already use. Um, so I, but, but I, in terms of how, you know, is it a game changer for, for, for children if parents are getting three or $4,000 a year? I, I just, I, I realize this is not a good answer to your question, but I, I just don't know how to think about that. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Catherine, what's, uh, your new think tank going to be primarily focused on? What can people go to the website to, to, to learn more about, um, in these early days? You just launched a few days ago, so obviously there's, there's plenty more to come, but, but what can people expect and, and really learn to lean on you guys for? Um, well, I founded CCFP, um, Center for Child and Family Policy. Sorry, thank you. I founded (laughs) Center for Child and Family Policy, um, to fill what I've seen as a gap in the early childhood field, mm-hmm. which is there's really, there's almost no um, research and policy work being done in early childhood. Most of the major early childhood organizations are focused on advocacy. Mm-hmm. It tends to be, they tend to be left leaning. Um, there are no, uh, there were there are um, no ma- major um, very few left-leaning think tanks 
do work in early childhood and no right leaning think tanks Mm -hmm. now do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, um, so there, so that's, that's a gap. Um, The way that the field is, has, has, has kind of developed um, it's, been very once the, the the policy debate has been very one-sided mm-hmm. um it's been dominated by left left-leaning advocates um academics funders and the right has really been relatively unengaged in this topic mm-hmm. um so there's been kind of a vacuum um that's narrowed the policy debate so to as we've been talking about early at this very sort of small slice of what we should be talking about mm-hmm. early education, leaving out early health, leaving out families, the role of families. Um, and there's a lack of debate in the field. So there's just, there's, there, there's, there's, you know, as I, I meaningful debate cannot take place with only one side talking. Mm-hmm. So what I'm aiming to do is to, create a, 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 a platform that will um, highlight these ideas that have been left out of the debate, um, elevate um, questions that, that have not been, been asked, um, create new space for more robust debate, um, and also create a, a platform for, there, you know, there are, there are great people scattered around who are um, in in the field of early childhood and family and early childhood and child um, family child and family policy, um, but they but they're 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 disparate. You know, there's no place for them to come together, um, and so I'm hoping that we'll be able to kind of bring some of those people together, just to just to expand the scope of what we're thinking and talking about, and first and more than anything. Um, I'm hoping to just focus the conversation on the well-being of young children in our society. What 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 growing up, being born into, and growing up in our society means um, for a young child. That that needs to be the center of our thinking in this policy area. And I'm hoping to um, help underscore that. What's the link to the website, and and how can people find you on social media? Um, the link to the website, it's um, uh, www.ccfp.org. And I am on Twitter at KB Stevens. Wonderful. Well, congratulations on launching the new organization. Thank Much you. needed. Um, and uh, excited uh, to to pour over everything that you guys put out over the next few years. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Catherine. Thanks so much. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We certainly enjoyed taping it. Uh, as always, be sure to subscribe to this episode and rate it five stars. Um, we always do appreciate that. If you write something interesting in your review, we'll be sure to show it on the show. Uh, we're getting very close to the end of season two here. So start sending in ideas for season three guests. We would really appreciate that. Uh, any ways you think we should change the program? If you think I should be kicked off the show, that'd be eminently reasonable. Uh, we're really grateful that you guys have listened to us all this year and look forward to seeing you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. 
Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.